I'm back here. You know, I, I'm not picking on anybody, but I just wonder why when we go to concerts or we go see a, a play, we want to sit up front, but in church, we want to sit in the back. <laughs> By the way, the Holy Spirit can get you more back here than you can up front. Just letting you know you can't hide. Anyway, it has nothing to do with my sermon this morning. I just kind of want to do things different, kind of throw you off guard. You don't know what I'm going to do. We're talking about deacons this morning. So open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. The first six verses is what we'll be looking at this morning. And while you do that, I will open up mine as well. Starting in the first verse. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procorius, and Caner, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Deacons. Deacon is probably the most misunderstood office or role in the local church. Many assume that the deacons are a board of directors, directing all the affairs of the church. In other words, I'd be like the CEO, and the deacons would be, the board of directors. Others assume that deacons are like the pastor police. They keep me in check, exercising authority over me. But neither one of those is correct. Deacons, by the very title, are called to serve. The Greek word that's translated deacon is diakonos. It means to serve or to be a servant. It can be translated those ways. And it must be stated that the noun form of the word that we get our word deacon from is nowhere in this text. You don't find it. However, the verb form to serve or to serve tables is found. Therefore, people look at this text as the first appointment of deacons. Not because the word deacon is used. It's because of why these men were called and what they were called to do. They were called to serve. That's the reason this text is looked at as the first appointment of deacons, even though that word specifically, the noun form, is not found in this text. So let's look at, in historical context, what was going on. Now at this time, literally in these days, while the disciples were increasing. Now Luke generally didn't give any chronological references. But when we look at where this happens inside the book itself, There's something that happened in Acts chapter 2 that's very important, the day of Pentecost. 
when Peter preached that sermon and over 3,000 people came forward in salvation. Now, they usually discounted the men, so that number could be a lot more than that. Then in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we read that over 5,000 came. So here's the point. The church is growing rapidly. Imagine for a moment 3,000 people showing up this morning, joining the church and becoming saved. We'd be here a while doing baptisms, wouldn't we? It'd be a great problem to have. That's huge. So put yourself in that situation. What happens when there's a lot of increase, a lot of growth real fast? You're going to have some problems, administrative problems. That's what's happening here. You have some administrative problems going on. We see that a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. And what does it mean by Hellenistic Jews? These Jews, after the kingdom had split and the northern kingdom was taken off in captivity, then later the southern kingdom, and when they came back, some of them stayed where they were. They were out all around uh, the known Roman Empire at that time. And Hellenistic means they're pretty much influenced by the Greek culture that was prevalent in that society. They spoke Greek. A lot of their cultures and what they did was had that Greek influence. And you had the native Hebrews that stayed around Jerusalem. So a lot of these people would move back for holy days, would come back to the holy city. So you had these two parts going on. And the Christian community at this point was pretty much Jewish. So you have these two groups. And what happens normally when you have a different ethnic group? We're, we're, we go to people who talk like us, look like us. We're naturally drawn to those type of people. So naturally, these people coming into the church would draw to each other. They would probably have a fellowship meal together or do things together. It's no different than what we do. We have the adults do stuff. We have the youth do things. Uh, these people had a, a little different subculture, so they were doing things just a little different. Now, I want to stress this point. The church wasn't... Church was not splitting. It wasn't that it had a great big breakup or whatever. What was happening is these people were distancing themselves apart because they spoke different. They spoke Greek. They didn't know Hebrew. They, they didn't know Aramaic. So they're just a little different. So that's what's happening here. And you see all these new converts come in. The Gentile mission had not begun because Paul, we don't read about Paul's conversion until Acts chapter 9. The only thing we have as an exception is Nicholas. If you look, when it lists his name, he said he was a proselyte from Antioch. Well, what's a proselyte? That's one person who converted to the to Jewish faith. He, he came and be a part of Judaism. So he was a follower. He knew about the Hebrews. He knew about the Jewish faith. That's the only difference that we see. So this distancing, if you will, manifested itself in a very practical way. What's the complaint that they have? Look at your text. What's the complaint? Our widows are being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the Hellenistic Jews, this group that had come in, heard the gospel, have converted over to Christianity, joined the church, say, hey, our widows are being overlooked. Now, in Jewish society, widows needed terrible things done for them. When they moved off and got married... They're away from their home and families to take care of them, so they would come back to Jerusalem to be taken care of. In fact, we see orphans singled out with the widows that they needed help. We are to take care of them. What does James tell us? Undefiled religion is this. To do what? To take care of the what? The widows and the orphans. Very important for the church to do that. So they're saying, hey, ours is being overlooked. There's no one here to care for them. They need this ministry of food. 
Our widows need to be taken care of. They're, they're being overlooked. Some of this, I think, because the church was just growing so fast and so quick. And to find people who are willing to do that, because up to this point, the 12 were doing everything. It's hard enough to keep up with 150 people, much less 8,000 people. So I hope I'm painting a picture where you can see you have all these new converts coming in, a little different subculture. They are Jewish, but they've been living off in the Greek society, a little influenced by that. They're coming together with these other Jews under Christianity, and it's growing so big, now you're starting to have administrative problems, which, by the way, is no different. And let me warn you now, as we continue to see increase, we're going to have some growing pains, all right? Not everybody in our society has ever stepped foot in church before. So we have to remember when people come in, we may not know who they are, but they may never come to a church service before. Perhaps they never know what happens in a church. You know, as, as, a, as a minister, I will tell you, and my wife can tell you as well, even doing weddings now, you'll be surprised. you say, well, traditionally you do this. Well, what's traditionally? I spent three hours one time with a very nice couple who had never been to a wedding before. All their family had been married before the justice of the peace. That was it. They never had a traditional marriage. So walking through that. So we can't take for granted that they know. Uh, if someone wears a hat in a building, don't get mad at them. They may not know. Just ask them to please remove it. It's our job to reach out to those people, pull them close to our side, and teach them and show them. And, be, you know, say, hey, you may not know this, but this is what we do. Instead of just looking at them like... I have to say this. I'm not going to tell you the church where I was at. We had a, a, some visitors come in, and they were sitting in this row. And this man, who was a leader in the church, looked at him and said, this is my family's pew. You need to get up. And they laughed, thinking he was just kidding around. No, he was deadly serious. That couple never came back. That's my point I'm driving at. And so you can see what is going on here. And the apostles, having that discernment wisdom, look what they do. They summon the congregation of them together. Even though it was just a group that was having this problem, they wanted the whole congregation to come together to address it because it wasn't just affecting one part of the congregation, it was affecting everybody. So they wanted the whole congregation to come together and to participate in the resolution. Look what they say. It's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. They didn't want that to distract them from their primary responsibility. The NIV renders that it would not be right, or could be understood as not pleasing in God's sight. Now, this passage is dealing with apostles, which are unique. The apostles were witnesses to the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. A little different here, so we can't use this proof text as pastors to say, I'm not going to do any administrative stuff. But the point being made here is we can't do it all. We can't neglect the preaching and the proclaiming of the gospel and teaching in order to do this. We, we can't do all the administrative stuff. We, we have to be, we're responsible for this. So we want you to find seven men among you to take care of this so we won't neglect it. And serving tables, all right, it's not meaning they're going to be a waiter going around placing food on the table. Serving tables meant much more. It meant to manage the distribution of food and other supplies. Or the term was also used to manage money. 
So serving tables meant to administer or manage a program or ministry. So what we're saying is, look, we need your help in taking care of all these widows. I can imagine a group that size, you probably had a lot of widows to be taken care of. They're basically saying, hey, we can't do this or we're going to neglect our primary responsibility in preaching and praying of the word. Now, as a side note, that's my primary responsibility as your pastor to spend time in the word, to spend time in prayer so I can preach what God wants me to. If I spend all my time doing all administrative stuff, the preaching ministry is going to suffer and you will notice it. There's a whole lot of difference. I mean, I can go on the Internet and pull off a sermon and preach it like it's mine, but you're going to be able to tell it, and so will I. But most importantly, you know who really going to know about it? And I'll have to answer for it. So I need to t- that doesn't mean I won't do any administrative stuff. I do do that. But my primary responsibility is to the preaching of the Word, to pray. I also visit and do other things, but that's my primary responsibility. So they said... Therefore, brethren, because of that, select from among you seven men. Now, the context of this would suggest these seven men would be Hellenistic Jews from that group. The reason I say that is that's where the problem started. Who would know better who the widows were? Who knew better how to communicate to those widows than one of their own? And when you look at the list of the people or the men who were chosen, all of those are Greek names doesn't come out and tell us they're a Hellenistic, but I'm just saying, based on the context, who would know better how to take care of those widows than one of their own? They can communicate to them. Perhaps the widows couldn't speak Aramaic or any Hebrew. They could speak Greek to the widows and get their needs taken care of. Now, if you look at what they said, they do lay down some basic qualifications. Men of good reputation. In other words, they're men who are respected in the church and in the community. All right? They are to be full of the Spirit. They need to have evidence that their life is being guided by the Holy Spirit. And you should be able to see it in their lives, from the big decisions to the small ones. Men who are full of Spirit and wisdom. Knowing, knowing what to do, but then how to do it and get it done. And they say, when you find these men, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So they're taking care of that part of the work for the congregation. And the apostles now could turn their attention to the preaching and proclaiming of the word. And by the way, that word devote, it means continually. It never stops. It just keeps on and on. Now, I'll admit to you that I don't pray as much as I should. Do you ever feel like that? You need to pray more? And preaching and preparing messages require a great deal of study and preparation. Deacons serve so the pastor can do what God's called him to do. doesn't mean I'll just say, I'm not going to do all that stuff. But it means sharing the load. They are my co-laborers in the ministry. And they help me by serving the congregation. And look what it says in our text. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. It's important to note that the congregation made the selection. The apostles assumed leadership in making the proposal. And they left the final approval of the plan and selection to the congregation. And of course, we have Stephen. There's no wonder he's listed first. 
because the next story would have him as about him, and that's Acts chapter 6, verse 8, until chapter 8, verse 4. He's the primary person in that. And also, Stephen was the first martyr of the church. No wonder why he was listed for Next was come Philip. Philip also played a major role in the early church. Now, the other five, we don't know about them, don't have any reliable information about them. We don't see them anywhere in the book. However, there is an early tradition that connects Procorius with the Apostle John, that he served as his secretary, possibly helped to write, the, uh, as John dictated, first and second and third John. Perhaps he was his secretary who did that for him, wrote it down as he spoke it. Later, they say he became bishop of Nicomedia and Bithynia, and ultimately he was martyred for his faith in Antioch. Now, also Nicholas, some scholars feel that perhaps he was Luke's main source for the Hellenistic information about them. Later, a Gnostic set of Nicolaitans borrowed his name in the second century. They borrowed his name to gather authority for their teaching. However, we have no evidence that he was connected with them whatsoever. My point being, we know two of them were prominently in the early church, but we don't have any other evidence of what the other guys did, but obviously they served the local church. And that's the seven that were first appointed. And so they, they brought them before the apostles. And when they did that, they installed them. The apostles confirmed the congregation's decision by the laying on of hands. Now, the laying on of hands... And the Old Testament had to deal with the transfer of some personal characteristic or responsibility. When Moses was stepping down and passing on to Joshua, so Moses was saying, okay, now it's your responsibility to lead the people. All right, it's now your responsibility to do this. And he laid on the hands to indicate that I'm passing the baton on to Joshua. I always wondered about Joshua. I mean, Moses would be the big shoes to fill, don't you think? I mean, how like I showed up here and you said, oh, our former pastor was Moses. <gasps> the first thing I was preached is probably in Joshua chapter 1. He says, Moses, your servant is dead. <laughs> I am now the one God's called. But he was passing that on. So in the Old Testament, you see that, that primary responsibility. Also, in the book itself, in the book of Acts, we see it laying all the hands for healings in chapter 9, verse 7. The gift of the Spirit in chapter 8, verse 18, chapter 9, verse 17. And the commissioning to a task to be done. Now here's the point I want to make of all those, all those examples. There's many more I can list. The emphasis is not an appointment to an office. The emphasis has always been on a selection to do a task, to serve. Because even with Stephen and Philip, they didn't sit in the office. We don't read about their administrative skills and what they did. No, we, we read about how they went out and witnessed to people. In fact, were martyred for their faith. So the emphasis is on them doing and serving, not sitting somewhere saying, I am a deacon or I am a pastor. I'm going to sit in my office and do nothing. Unfortunately, a lot of our churches, Southern Baptist churches, I'll pick on us, have gone to that model. The deacons pretty much run the church, and the pastor acts as the CEO. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not biblical. We are to serve. The deacons are to serve the church and inform me and help me to meet the needs of the congregation. Look around you. There's quite a few more people here than it was the first Sunday I came here, praise God. 
They help me and keep me informed. And by the way, I say this in announcements. I'm going to say it to you. If you know the situation, don't assume that I know about it. Don't assume the deacons will know. Call me. Text me. If I get five phone calls or something, I'm going to say, I'm not going to get mad about it. I'm thinking, man, God really wants me to take care of this. Had five people call me, tell me about it. But don't assume anything. Let us know so we can take care of it. So they, they did this. And they put them aside for that purpose. Deacons, by the very title, are called to serve. They are my co-laborers as pastor to come alongside of me to pray for each other and to lead this congregation to meet the needs of the congregation. So when deacons serve the church well on purpose, the gospel is advanced, the great commission is fulfilled, people grow deeper in their faith and in their walk with Christ. Look at verse 7. What does verse 7 tell us? The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And look what he adds. And the great number or excuse me, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So the Old Testament, the Levitical priests were hearing the good news of Christ and now converting to Christianity. Priests! That's because everyone was doing what they were called to do. And we live in an age where it seems the whole world is turning against the church and the things of Christ. But if we, as the body of Christ, are in harmony with each other, everyone doing what they're called to do, the pastor proclaiming the word, the deacons ministering and serving the flock, church members loving and serving each other, there's no telling the number of people who will be reached for the Lord. So telling. Because every one of us in here are called to serve. Not just the pastor, not just deacons, everybody's called to serve. And you've got so many different ways. We have committees now in place. Why are they there? To take care of stuff to serve. Because one person can't do it all. And some of you have gifts and talents in in different areas that you can come bring your experience and expertise to bear on something that we're looking at. The opportunities are endless. But there's one thing we all should be doing, regardless of what you're called, your special gifts, is to pray. I hope that you're praying for each other and for this church on a daily basis. Anytime you see a movement of God, this first or second great awakening is always prefaced by people praying. You ever heard of the guy named Charles Spurgeon? Perhaps you heard of him. One of the greatest preachers there is over in England, across the pond, as they say. Many came to faith by hearing. People would stand outside. They opened up the windows. That's before they had microphones and he would speak. Many would come to faith. But what a lot of people don't know, it was a two-story building. You know what was happening underneath him? Hundreds of people were praying constantly through the service. And he would say, it's not me, it's God moving. And the people praying. That's his own words. You can do that too. You don't have to go in the back room. You can pray right where you're at. Pray with expectations. And by the way, deacons have a lot of responsibility. And they may call on one of you to help them. If they call for help, help them. Hey, you want to go visit so-and-so with me? Hey, you want to help me do this? Go with them. 
serve with them. Are we loving one another? If we are, it requires us to allow Jesus to mold us in what he's called us to do and doing what he's called us to do. Jesus said in John 13, 35, that all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And he's not just talking about any type of love. He's talking about the love with which he has loved us and continues to love us. So today, before we go any further, I want to extend the invitation out to anyone who doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, then none of this sermon is going to make sense to you. You need to come to faith in Christ first. Give your life to him first. I'll help you. I will show you who the Savior is. And we will help you. And help you study the Bible because we want you to be everything that God wants you to be. If you've done that, perhaps God's leading you to join this local church, to come alongside of us and to serve. Well, Tim, I don't know what my gifts are. We have a little test back there. Now, it's man-made. Don't let it pigeonhole you in anything. But it could give you an indication because some of you have multiple gifts. I know we have some prayer warriors in our midst. We have some carpenters in our midst. We have some electricians in our midst. All this comes to play in taking care of the local church. Some of you will just witness anybody that walks up to you on the street just like that. Praise God. All those working together for the common goal and the common purpose of building God's kingdom. So maybe God's calling you to do that. Maybe you have a grudge or something against another brother or sister you need to lay aside. Now, please know my heart with this last statement. I do care what you think to me to a certain degree. I'm a human being just like you. But I don't serve this church because you like me. I serve this church because God called me here. There's a difference. When we rub each other the wrong way, we will, won't we, Jerry? Yeah, we go on a daily basis sometimes. No, I'm kidding. But we know the bigger goal in mind, building God's kingdom, keeping our eyes on the prize. All right? We... we recognize each other and we we have to forgive each other but we press on because what's at stake people's eternities at stake heaven or hell life or death and that's very very serious i shouldn't allow myself to be tangled up and all these other i don't i don't i need to dress them and and take you know i care about people's feelings but at the same time i can't get so entangled in that that I forget about why we're here. The bigger purpose. So as we go into the invitation time, allow God to speak to you. And please be obedient to his voice. Because at the end of the day, you join this church or you serve this church, you're not serving me. You're not serving the deacons. You're serving the congregation to, the, to a point, but you know who you're really serving? Christ. This is his bride. With all his faults and shortcomings that we see, the church is his bride for which he died for. Spilt his blood for. We should not take that lightly. But all seriousness, 
and be amazed at the fact that God calls us to serve that body. Would you stand with me, please?